0: It's my privilege to be able to open the Word of God with you this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians um, chapter 1, in just a little bit, we will be looking at verses 8 through 11. I don't know if you have heard the story of, of, we call him St. Patrick, I think in his day he was just called Patrick, Um, but it's uh, actually my oldest son, his name is Patrick, so it's a little bit of a, a story that I like to tell and I'm interested in for sure. Um, but Patrick grew up in what is now um, Britain, and he grew up in a Christian home. His father was a was a deacon, and as a teenager, probably around age 14 or 15, he was kidnapped and taken into slavery and sold in, uh, sold to a swineherder in Ireland. And so, as a teenage boy, um, Patrick is taken away from his home, taken across. Um, the sea taken to Ireland. Ireland today is this beautiful place of rolling green hills. Um, but Patrick called it the end of the world. Like it's, and it's full of druids and all kinds of paganism, and it's a scary place. So he's, he, actually, in his time as a slave, as a swine herder, um, he became a Christian himself. He began to pray, he began to cry out to God, and he spent six years as a slave, um, herding pigs. And then he had this this strong impression that there was escape waiting for him. And he had a picture of a boat and he went and he he fled and there was a boat where he went to and he got back to his family and back to his home after six years of slavery. um, He returns to England and gets out of Ireland. Now, if I were Patrick, I would turn around, I would praise God for his deliverance. And I would be thankful that he delivered me out of slavery and delivered me from the Irish back to my home and back to my people and back to my family. But God called Patrick. Pa- Patrick talks about this, this experience. It sounds very much like Paul's um, with the, the Macedonian call of, of this call to go back to the land of his slavery, to go back to Ireland and preach the gospel. And so he trained in ministry and he prepared and then he was actually rejected from being a missionary. They chose to send somebody else besides him. And if I were Patrick, I would take that as something of a signal, well, maybe this is not my calling. And maybe I can actually enjoy my life here in England and maybe be a, a pastor of a church that's not trying to kill me. Um, but, but, God, but he still felt this call. And when the other missionary actually died, Patrick was sent instead, and he went and he became a missionary in Ireland. And it wasn't all shamrocks and leprechauns. Uh, his calling to mission, his missions in Ireland was very difficult. He writes, he, he wrote a, a book about his life, and he wrote that he was 12 times he faced life-threatening situations. So 12 times he was in fear of his life. Now, that's, that's a long time, and maybe I would, after the sixth or seventh, felt like I've done my due diligence here, and I'll go go to a church not trying to kill me. Um, including one time when you think about his time being kidnapped and taken as a slave, including one time where he was in captivity for two weeks that he was kidnapped and held in captivity for two weeks, but he continued on in his mission. And according to church history, he planted over 200 churches and a hundred thousand people came to Christ. This is in the fourth century, a tremendous uh, mission. But what I, what I love about Patrick is that Patrick chose to go to a people that had persecuted him and literally enslaved him. And he chose to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And he didn't have to. He didn't have to. And we've been talking about in the book of 2 Corinthians, and we've preached about this before, that there are different types of suffering. And I don't want you to hear me from the pulpit this morning to minimize any kind of suffering. All suffering is difficult, and we cry out to God for help. But there is this kind of suffering that comes from being living in a broken world. And this is a suffering um, that all of us experience, not to the same degree. It's not fair. The way this kind of suffering is distributed, it's distributed unequally, but it is part of living in a world that's been broken and infected by sin. And there's pain and there's sickness and there's death and there's sorrow. And there's heartache that comes from living in a broken and fallen world. And that's real suffering. And I do think that our text has something to say to that kind of suffering But that's not the focus of today's text. There's also a kind of suffering that comes from our own stupidity, our own sin. It's the kind of suffering you're going down the freeway at 15 miles over the speed limit and you get pulled over and there's a fine to pay. And that hurts, um, but you should have avoided that kind of suffering. So the first kind of suffering you can't avoid it's, if, you can, if you can, I think it's fine. Try to avoid that kind of suffering as much as you can. Um, do the right things to, to live healthily and all of that. But there, there's a sense in which you're not going to be able to t- totally avoid the suffering that comes from living in a broken and fallen world. We all participate in that. We're all, we all hurt in that. There's a kind of suffering you should avoid. <laughs> the that su- kind of suffering that comes from being sinful or being foolish. My, chil- my children suffer this sometimes. Um, But then there's another kind of suffering. And this is the kind of suffering that that Paul has in mind here in 2 Corinthians. It's a suffering that could be avoided. It's a suffering that could be avoided, but is embraced. That is embraced. It's the kind of suffering that Patrick in in the story I just told embraced. When he didn't have to go to Ireland, he could have stayed in England. He could have stayed in Britain. But he chose to anyway. It's the kind of suffering that, that Christ chose to endure for our sake. Uh is the kind of suffering that Paul, as he talks about in 2 Corinthians, is enduring. Later on in the book of 2nd Corinthians, um, we'll get to this passage in a few months. But Paul kind of gives this laundry list of what he has suffered for the sake of the gospel. He says that five times he received thirty nine lashes. And the reason for 39 in the, in the kind of the Jewish idea is that 40 lashes was the maximum penalty. You shouldn't be, um, have more than 40. So they give you 39 in case, in case the count got off a little bit. Right? So you wouldn't receive more than 40. So five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. And I'm not sure which is worse, but I don't really want either. So five times he's beaten with a whip. Five, uh, three times he's beaten with rods. One time he was stoned. And the book of Acts tells us about that. And he was basically left for dead. And what did he do? He crawled back into town and kept preaching the gospel. And so he, once he was stoned, several times he was shipwrecked. Uh, he even says that one, there was one night I spent at sea adrift at sea. And the book of Acts doesn't tell us that story. I'd be really interested to hear it. Many times he faced imprisonment. Many times he faced death. And this is Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel. He was a tent maker. He, was a, he, was a, a, he could have been a rabbi. He had a, a, something to go back to. It's the kind of suffering that he chose to endure for the sake of Christ that he didn't have to. It's a chosen kind of suffering. But he sees it as a suffering that comes from following a suffering and crucified Messiah. That if Jesus is our example, if Jesus is our Lord, if Jesus is the Messiah, then we follow him in suffering. And I don't want to spend my, my time here this morning um, bashing on people I don't agree with. That's not the point of the, the focus of the sermon. But I would really, truly truly be interested to, to hear Paul's response to health and wealth preachers um, who, who say that, you know, if you do, if you do the right things and God's going to bless you with with private jets and wealth and riches. And, and Paul, who's saying, no, following the gospel means suffering like Christ, suffering like Christ. It couldn't be more different than that. But there's also another kind of suffering that Paul's enduring here. So there's a the suffering for the sake of the gospel. And that's that's in mind. But Paul's also enduring a suffering in his relationship with the Corinthian church. So Paul's not writing these letters dispassionately. I, I used to kind of imagine Paul um, as this kind of ivory tower theologian who's writing these long theological treatises. And that's not the Paul of the Bible. The Paul of the Bible is a, is a man with a pastor's heart who cares for these people as if he's, they're his children, and he's suffering along with them. But I want to spend a little bit of time because I actually think this will be helpful for us understanding not only this passage but the rest of of 2 Corinthians kind of detailing Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church. So I'm going to go through a little bit of a history lesson here and all of this you can piece together from Acts and from both both epistles to the Corinthians. But the church that was in Corinth was established by Paul in around 50 to 51. AD, that's actually one of the clearest dates we have because there was a certain governor that was only in office from such and such a time. So it's a pretty certain fact that we know the date around there, 5051. And he established his church 20 years after Jesus died and and was raised from the dead, after he was rejected by by the Jews, by his own people. And so it was mostly a church of Gentiles, people very different than him and, and from his backdrop. And he stayed there for a year and a half. And that's significant too, because this is not a, just a church that Paul started and then he went from place to place to place. This, he spent significant amount of time with them. A year and a half is a long time of his ministry, living with them, ministering with them, preaching to them, suffering with them, seeing the gospel at work. So he spends a, a very amount, long amount of time in, with the church in Corinth. And then he goes across the Aegean Sea. So uh, Corinth is in Greece, modern day Greece, if you plunked. Geography—it's okay. You can. There's a country named Greece, and there's a country named Turkey today. So he moved from modern-day Greece, uh, where Corinth is, to modern-day um, Turkey, where Ephesus is. And he, when he's there, he starts to hear about problems in the church. He starts to hear about problems in the church, and so he writes this quick letter. And we know this—it's not First Corinthians. First Corinthians talks about a previous letter he wrote. So he writes this with this quick letter. Something to do with not associating with with certain kinds of immoral people. And then he hears that his letter has been misunderstood and that there are these factions arising in the church. This is a church he cares about, that he's bled for, probably literally. So there's this church, he's, he writes this letter, it's misunderstood, there's these factions in the church, and if you've read 1 Corinthians, you might remember this, there's people who say, well, I am, I'm of the faction of Paul, I'm, I'm the Paul group, and there's people who say, well, I'm, I'm of the Apostle Peter, I'm the Peter group, and then there's people, I'm of Apollos, and then there's this, I imagine, this very self-righteous, stodgy people, I'm of the Jesus group. So there's all these different groups, and they're saying, I'm this group, this group, this group, and the church is fracturing and splintering, and so Paul is is wrote 1 Corinthians to clear this up. So he writes a book of 1 Corinthians to clear up the misunderstandings and to address these factions within the church. Um, And in this letter, there's a couple of things that are important to understanding uh, 2 Corinthians. One, again and again, he exercises what you would say is apostolic authority. Meaning he doesn't just say, I think it's really bad, the things you're doing, and you shouldn't do them. Um, It's my feelings. I I just don't think it's the best way to go about. He's saying... I have authority from Christ as an apostle. I've been authorized, and you need to not do this, and you need to do this. He exercises real authority. So he's exercising his authority as an apostle. And he also says at the end of the letter that if the Lord wills, and this is also important to understanding 2 Corinthians, but if the Lord wills, he's going to re- spend the winter with them. Remember, there's relationships going on here. So he spent a year and a half, and his plan is that he's going to come back and spend the winter. Well, something happens after the letter of of 1 Corinthians, don't know exactly what, but it causes Paul to come back to Corinth outside of his plans, a very very quick visit, and it's a painful visit. It's a visit where his relationship with them is at the verge of breaking and fracturing. Yeah, and he has to exercise church discipline. There's a man in the church that he disciplines. Um, in 2 Corinthians, he is saying you can restore him you know, in love. So th- he's been removed from the church. There are people who are challenging his authority of, do we really listen to him? Um, is he really an apostle? He's not that impressive. So there's all these things happening. And Paul goes back to Ephesus not knowing if this church is going to make it and if his relationship with this church is going to make it. And he loves them as if they're his children. There's pain in that. And maybe some of you um, have experienced that sort of pain with people that you love deeply and dearly. And there's relational pain involved in that as the relationship is threatened to break. And that's what Paul's experiencing as a a human being. So he, he is distressed by this visit. And because of this visit and this plan's changing, he decides not to come back and spend the winter with them. And that actually causes some of the corinthians to question well paul said he would come back and he didn't um, why didn't he come back does he really care about us is the relationship over there's all those sorts of things so instead of coming back he sends his companion his fellow worker titus and paul talks about this anxiety that he feels as he sends titus back to the he doesn't know how he's going to be received so he sends titus because he doesn't want to cause him further pain and he's waiting for Titus. There's no email or text message or you know, all those sorts of things. He has to wait for Titus to go and come back. And he's not sure if this relationship's going to continue. But Titus comes back with good news. They receive Titus. They bless Titus. And they have a desire to be reconciled with Paul. So Paul is writing this letter in that context. This context of this relationship that he, he values dearly. He spent a year and a half with them that's had a lot of fractures, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, and he's in the midst of trying to repair it. And he's hoping to come back um, and visit them again, which he does. And this letter is to prepare the way for that. So he's writing this letter in preparation for his third visit. And in this letter, he's clearing up several issues. One is his authority. So he's exercised this authority as an apostle, and there are people who are questioning his authority as an apostle. And some of the people who are questioning his authority as an apostle, uh, they seem to be these rather, Paul, I, I think he uses it kind of as a, as a put-down a bit, as he calls them super-apostles. There's these super apostles who have all these letters of recommendation, which was kind of normal in the ancient world. Um, kind of like politicians go around and they get endorsements from newspapers and from all these sorts of people. Well, as you're moving from place to place, you have this little pile of letters of recommendation. Here's all the people who say, you should listen to me. And that I'm a, I'm a pretty dignified guy. So there's these people who are undermining his authority, challenging him. And one of the accusations they also have against Paul, and this, you could imagine this hurting a little bit on a personal level. as They say, yeah, you know, in his letters, Paul's, Paul's impressive. But in person, he's not very impressive. Like, he doesn't cut that fine of a figure in the pulpit. Like, he, he's very, very eloquent in his letters, but he's not eloquent in person. And hey, I'm a lot more eloquent. So you have this sort of, um, you know, controversy of, is Paul really that great of an apostle? And I'll let you judge whether this is the way people think today or not. Um, You can imagine what I think. But uh, in, in Paul's day, being rich was actually a sign of favor from God. This is how most people thought. If you were wealthy, then that's a sign that God actually liked you. And he's blessing you with all this wealth. And if you're suffering... Well, that's kind of the opposite sign. So here's Paul going to prison, being beaten, suffering all these things, and these apostles come in, and these super apostles come in, and they're, they're actually fairly wealthy, they're fairly eloquent, they have all these letters of recommendation. And like, who are you going to listen to? That guy or us? Paul or us? And so Paul is writing this letter to defend his apostleship. And what does it look like? Really the point of 2 Corinthians in large part is, what does it look like to be an apostle of Jesus, an apostle of a suffering, crucified, and risen uh, Messiah. And Paul's, Paul's main argument in 2 Corinthians is that God is glorified in human weakness. I, I think our, our sermon art actually illustrates this very well strength and weakness. Paul is actually going to lead with the, 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 the very th- point that his opponents are using against him that he's weak. And Paul saying, yes, I am weak, but in my weakness, God is made strong. Uh, God is shown to be strong. That in my weakness, God is glorified. That it's not my accolades, which I have. I could list all these different accolades that I have. That's not the point. The point is what God does in suffering and in human weakness. So this, this text this morning is about a sort of suffering that's chosen. A suffering that could be avoided but is a suffering for Christ, a suffering for the gospel. In last week's text, Paul wrote that, that we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. And I, I think that this is following in from that. He's going to show us here how the Corinthians can share in their, his sufferings and also share in his comfort. So I'd love to read today's text where Paul here today is beginning a defense of his apostleship by reminding them, of his suffering for the gospel. So for that second Corinthians chapter one, verse eight, for we do not want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God Who raises the dead? He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. And on Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. I'd love to pray for us as we look into God's Word together this morning. Father, I, I thank you for the book of 2 Corinthians. I thank you for the reminder that your strength is made, uh, made to be known, your strength is shown through our weakness. And Father, even though there's a lot about this passage and this message that's difficult and hard, it's also an encouraging message because we are weak. Father, I, I doubt that there's a person in this room that doesn't feel his or her own weakness and inadequacy as we approach you, as we try to live our lives in a way that honors you and glorifies you. But Father, thank you that you use weak and broken vessels. And Father, I I thank you that you strengthen us and you encourage us. And there is a comfort that comes through your spirit. Father, I pray that as I um, read your word this morning, as we reflect on your word this morning, I pray that your people will be encouraged. I pray that your spirit will work. Um, Father, I pray that you will help us to respond to what you have um, ordained to be written here. Um, Father, and give us the strength that we don't have in ourselves to do as we've been called to do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians is, as we've said, largely a defense of Paul's apostleship in the face of attacks, both on his character and his credentials. And these attacks are coming from both within the church and outside the church. And again, this isn't Paul as kind of you know, detached answering these critiques this is Paul answering these critiques in an intimate relationship with these people that he loves as if his own children. It's a deeply personal, raw epistle, really, Second um, Corinthians is. So our passage is the beginning of his defense. The, the first seven verses are kind of his prayer and Thanksgiving section. And here he's beginning the narrative of defending himself against these attacks. And he takes his unexpected tack. Instead of glorying in his recommendations and accolades, which he could do. And he tells us later, hey, if we want to stack up resumes, I could, I could play that game. But instead of going there, Paul glories in his weakness because it is in human weakness that God's glory is most perfectly demonstrated. And so as part of his argument, Paul begins by telling them of his suffering in Asia. And Asia is not, when we think of Asia, you're thinking of quite a large continent. But Asia in um, Paul's day is a province in uh, western Turkey, so just right across the Aegean Sea, includes the city of Ephesus. So he begins by telling them of his suffering in Asia, and while we're unsure about the exact incident being referred to, it seems to be an incident in which there was some threat to his life. A lot of the words used here of affliction, affliction is usually a word that that implies a persecution from outside. It's not just like a sickness or a pain. Affliction is persecution. And he talks about um, receiving or feeling as if he's received a sentence of death. And sentence of death, again, is one of those words that indicates like the death penalty. So this is Paul suffering some sort of persecution. And Paul's come to the point where he thinks he's likely not to make it. He's going to die. He's going to be put to death. He's going to be executed. Um, There's some incident where that threatens his life. And Paul's ministry is full of this suffering for the gospel. It's possible. So we don't actually know for sure. But it's possible that the situation that Paul's referring to is, and if you don't remember the story, it's fine, but it's in Acts, oh, I forgot to write it down, 18 or 19, where Paul goes to Ephesus And he starts to preach the gospel and people are responding and they're turning from their idols to serve the living God. And Ephesus is the kind of the headquarters of the worship of Diana, who's a pagan goddess. And there's this guy named Demetrius and he's a silversmith. Now you can imagine if you're a silversmith and people aren't worshiping idols anymore, that that might kind of hit your bank account. And so Demetrius was really upset by this. And so he starts a riot and he gets a bunch of his cronies and people together and they go through the streets shouting, great is Diana, the Ephesians, great is Diana, the Ephesians. And they start grabbing some of Paul's associates. They don't grab Paul himself in the, in, in the Acts narrative, but they grab some of his associates and it looks like they're going to be killed. So they they are dragged into the town square. And then there's this city clerk that comes up and says, hey guys, let's not do things this way. If you have a legal uh, matter to attend to, then talk to the pro-council, but let's not do it through a mob. And then Luke doesn't tell the rest of the story. He says, after the disturbance in Ephesus had finished, then Paul left. So it is possible, we don't know, but it's possible that what Paul's referring to is maybe there was actually a trial. So the city clerk says, um, you, want, you can do this legally, but not as a mob. And that Paul thought he was going to die. That's, that's very possible. And so maybe that's the incident that he's talking about. Or it could be one of many stories that Luke in, in the book of Acts just doesn't tell us. Um, when I gave you that laundry list earlier, Paul was beaten five times, uh, whipped five times with lashes, beaten four times with rods, shipwrecked three times. Um, not all of those stories are in the book of Acts. So it's also very possible that Paul's referring to an incident that we just don't know about. But what we do know is that he was worried that he was going to die and that he really saw that as a very real possibility. And he, he talks about basically, I had no other recourses. <laughs> I had no, nothing I could do. Uh, except turn to God. Now sometimes, and sometimes as a, when you're, you're preaching or you're teaching, there's these sort of things that people learned in Sunday school that, you, that are not always sort of correct. And um, I think this is, I, I want to correct something here that I actually think will be encouraging to you for it to be corrected. So when I, when I grew up thinking about Paul, um, I kind of thought of Paul as one of these guys who, who whistles while he's beaten. I don't know if you remember the story where Paul's thrown into prison in Philippi, and it says that he and Silas they sing they they sing um, hymns and prayed all night. And I'm imagining, as a kid, and maybe you imagine this, um, that Paul's like, "I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart," and Silas is like, "Where?" and Paul's like, "Down in my heart," you know, like, and they're in prison, and they're just like, "This is great. We're in prison." But I don't think that's what's going on there at all. Actually, when we we talk about hymns being sung in a Jewish context, they're talking about Psalms. If you know the Psalms, the Psalms are actually full of cries out to God for deliverance. Jesus quoted Psalm 22 on the cross My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I think what's happening in this passage is not that Paul and Silas are, are having a party while they're in prison. I think what's happening is they're singing out these psalms that are cries out for deliverance and praying all night. And then what happens? An earthquake comes and God delivers them. He answers their prayer. Um, There is, and you see this in Acts, a sort of rejoicing or a joy that comes with being counted as worthy as suffering for the sake of the gospel. The apostles um, rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the gospel. I, I think that there is that idea, but that's not the idea of enjoying it oh, I get to be beaten today. This is great. I think Paul was a real human being. And as he experienced these things, as he's thrown into prison, as he's facing death, as he's beaten, as he's stoned, as he's shipwrecked, as he's out on the middle of the sea, that these are real troubles. Just reflect with me on these, these phrases that we were utterly burdened. Have you ever felt that way? Utterly burdened beyond our strength. This is, this is more than we could endure is kind of the idea. Um, we despaired of life itself. We felt that we had received the sentence of death. No, Paul wasn't as we maybe sometimes picture, as, picture him, or maybe it's just me, somebody who, who inter- goes into suffering with a smile on his face. No, he speaks of being burdened beyond our strength. He's a real human being, and this suffering is intense, and it's more than he can bear. So his suffering was intense, but what we see here and what we see through the pages of Scripture is Paul knew where to turn. Paul knew where to turn in his suffering. I want to read um, verse 9 again. But that was to make, that that here is this affliction, this deadly peril, this suffering beyond our strength. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And he delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us. And on him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. I don't know if you remember last week in the, the earlier passage that Paul uses the word comfort 10 times in these few verses. And I don't know if you've ever read it out loud. It's almost kind of awkward. It's like comfort, comfort, comforting, comfort, comfort. Like Okay, Paul, use another word. But he's really after that idea. Here, similarly, he uses the word deliver, not 10 times, but three times. Do so you see this, that um, he delivered us, he will deliver us, he will deliver us again. So, this is Paul going to this deliverance that as God comforted him, he delivered him from his deadly peril. So, having related the severity of his probably literal trial in some sense, sentence of death, Paul felt it was coming. It was a sentence of death. I'm going to be put to death. This is it. This is the end. Um, Paul pivots to the point of his trials. God was teaching Paul and his fellow workers to trust not in themselves, But in him who raises the dead, the hopelessness of of their situation forced them to turn to the only one who could help them coming to an end of themselves enabled them to fully rest in the hands of the living God. And when deliverance came, all the glory goes to him. And he talks here. There's three deliverances. I think the first deliverance is from that actual situation in which he was in. He was about to die. They cried out to God for help. They had nowhere else to turn. There was nothing they could do. I don't know if you've ever faced troubles and you've ran out of things to do. You know, normally we have things we can do. We can try this. We can try this. We can try this. And there was, we're trying all these different things to escape the trouble, or the difficulty that we're in. But Paul had nothing left he could do. He had fully placed his hands, his himself in the hands of God. He came to an end of himself. So in this first situation, God delivered him, but his danger isn't over. He needs deliverance still. Whatever this peril or this danger was that he faced, he's still trusting in him to deliver him. So there's an ongoing danger. It's not this thing you're delivered once and now you're good. It's a continued danger. There's a future deliverance. He'll deliver us again. And, and Paul, if you're going to follow the whole story, Paul's eventually going to have his head cut off. So there is a sense in which, well, did God deliver him Then? And I think Paul would say, yes, um, it's the God who raises the dead. That Paul is one who believes in the resurrection, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And even if, even if my, my suffering ends in my death, that I trust that God in the end will also deliver me and, reconci- uh, and prove that I was in the right. So this ultimate deliverance points us towards the resurrection. Paul's trouble, troubles didn't end with being saved from death. He continued to face trouble. He knows he will time and time again, um, and I, I'm sure that as you think about your own trouble and your own difficulty, you can attest that it's not that we suffer once and then God delivers us and our suffering is over. That would be great, wouldn't it? That's that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a continual process of learning to trust God again and again and again, and again, and even Paul, and if that sounds discouraging, I find this, I find this encouraging. Even Paul needed to learn to place himself in the trust, uh, in the hands, and trust the living God, learning to trust again and again. But Paul's deliverance from this trial helps him to trust in future trials, and Paul's knowledge that future trials are coming helps him to continue to go to God and continually um, continue to rely upon God for deliverance. The resurrection points to an end to this cycle. But in the meantime, we need to place ourselves fully in the hands of a gracious father. But Paul's trials are not finished. So he enlists the Corinthian church to help him through prayer. Remember last week, we talked about yeah, Paul, Paul is calling on the Corinthians to share in his suffering and in his comfort. And I think the way that they're to do that is through prayer. Um, So verse 11, you must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. One of the most important lessons that we can learn through suffering is dependence upon God for his work and prayer is a way that we participate in God's deliverance. Uh, I have a quote here from a a commentator, and I want to wrestle with this for a minute. But prayer is neither surrender to the inevitability of God's will, prayer is not surrender to the inevitability of God's will, nor the attempt to manipulate God to do his will. So if if you have been taught by good theology, and I'm affirming this theology, by the way, don't hear me wrong, but by good theology, that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God has a plan, and that there's nothing that takes God by surprise, that God knows the end from the beginning, you might be tempted to kind of see prayer as a somewhat pointless, fruitless, useless exercise. Like, why pray when God already knows what he's going to do, right? I don't know if you've ever felt that. And I don't think that that is in line with the teaching of Scripture, I don't think that's in line with the teaching of scripture. I do think it's in line that God is sovereign, that God's in control. But I think what scripture teaches us, and I think clearly in this passage, is that God chooses to work through prayer. That God works his plan. God ordains his will. And God chooses to do so through prayer. Paul talks about being helped by their prayer. There's an effectiveness to prayer. So prayer is not a surrender to the inevitability of God's will. God answers prayer. God works his will through prayer. Neither is prayer, a prayer an attempt to manipulate God. As if if I say the words in the right way, I can get God to do what I want. That I can control God. That would be another big problem. There's a mystery here, if you will. Or there is a, a lack of a human ability to understand how God's, God works. But God is sovereign and God works through prayer. And your prayers are effective. They do things. God works through them. So it is often the means through which God accomplishes his will. Prayer is not this fruitless exercise that God's just going to do what he's going to do. It doesn't matter. Prayer is not this way that you can force God to do what you want. No, prayer is the means through which God often accomplishes his will. God works through prayer. And the goal of prayer, and we see this in this passage, and even the, the goal of our hope for deliverance from suffering should be the glory of God. God is glorified when he answers prayer. And here Paul's, Paul says, as you join us join us in suffering through prayer, it's the idea, that you will also be able to join in giving thanks as God accomplishes his will, as God um, answers the prayer. The goal of prayer is thanksgiving and praise. So real quickly, I just want to fit these, these verses kind of in the larger argument of 2 Corinthians. Paul is taking this very unexpected direction As he defends himself, what people would have expected in his his context in his day would be people challenging your apostolic authority. Well, look at my education. Here are some people who endorse me. Hey, I know Peter. I know I know Apollos. I know these guys. I've been to them. I've talked with them. They've they've backed up my message. Um, Look at all the great. Look how many churches I've started. And look at all these things I've accomplished. Paul could do that. He actually says it kind of facetiously later on in 2 Corinthians. He says, hey, if we want to stack up resumes, let's go. I can do that. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he actually is taking the very thing that people are critiquing him on. He's not really that impressive. He's kind of a weak vessel. And he's saying, yes, I am weak. And in my weakness, God is made strong. And it is, I am following in the sufferings of Christ. And that is an affirmation of of that I'm a true apostle, that I suffer, not that I'm wealthy and healthy and wise. So responding to God's word, I want to sit on two things, first on suffering and then on prayer. I don't know if you're like me, when you read these kinds of um, passages, or maybe you hear the the story of St. Patrick, and as I was preparing for this message, wow, I don 't know if if I really should be preaching this. I have not endured a great amount of suffering for the cause of christ i haven 't been beaten um, with rods i haven 't been lashed thirty nine times i ha- 've never been shipwrecked i 've never had a threat of my life for the sake of the gospel um, i 've never been kidnapped and sold into slavery and gone back to the people that sold me I, when we 're thinking about paul and we 're thinking about um, Patrick, I'm um, thinking about the, the, the big people in church history, right? And the apostles. There's a bit of a, oh, I I don't know if I really know what I'm talking about with that kind of suffering. Um, and I, I think that even if we don't suffer the threat of our life, even if we don't suffer the loss of everything we have for the sake of Christ, there is a time, and there are probably many times in our lives where we have to choose to embrace suffering when we don't have to. So remember going back to those different kinds of suffering. There is a suffering that comes from being broken, uh, from being living in a broken world. You can't really escape that. That is That hurts. It's hard. It's difficult. It's part of living life in this broken, fallen world. Um, there's a suffering that comes from foolishness. Don't suffer that way if you can possibly avoid it. But there is this, this another kind of suffering this suffering for Christ, this suffering for the gospel, this suffering for doing what is right, that sometimes we might be scared to embrace or hesitant to embrace, but actually our calling is to embrace it. There's a kind of suffering that we're called to, like Christ did, like Paul did. Um, perhaps it's pressures in jobs. Perhaps it's pain that comes in relationships. Perhaps it's, it's pain in your reputation, um, the way that it, as being faithful to Christ will not, will not look, look good on my, on my reputation, on my resume. That there are times in which we might be called, and maybe God is calling you, maybe there's something in your life today, that doing what God is calling you to do, doing the right thing, will involve some degree of suffering. Some degree of suffering. And I do think that this passage speaks to that. So how do you view your suffering? Do you see it as a random Um, as you see as random, purposeless, just part of living in a brokenness of the world. And there's some truth in that. But although much of our suffering is a result of living in a broken world, the Bible portrays God as a God who works in and through Suffering works in and through suffering. Last week, we noted the importance of our view of God as we face suffering, that we need to view God as this gracious and compassionate Father, not as this guy who's just sending us suffering um, for the sake of it. But it's also important to have the right view of suffering. Even in the worst of circumstances, God is at work, whether we see it or not. There's also important to suffer in the right way. And here what we see, Paul, the lesson he learns from his suffering is learning the reliance upon God. It's not a reliance upon yourself. Sometimes that's what God is teaching us, is our need for him. And we learn that lesson again and again. But he also uses his suffering to point to Christ, to point to Christ, that Christ suffered on our behalf, that we sometimes suffer on, on the behalf of others. And he uses his suffering to point to Christ. The second the point I want to make in the responding to God's word is having the right view of prayer. Having the right view of prayer. What is your view on prayer? Do you view prayer as this sort of futile exercise? Okay, we're supposed to pray, but I don't really know what this does. Or as a way of getting God to do what you want? Like if I, if I, if I can just find the magic words, <laughs> or if I pray 432 times, then God has to do the thing I want. Do you view prayer that way? Or is that a means through which God is glorified and, which, and through which God works. Prayer is, in a very real way, participating in the suffering of others. I, I want you to think about this in a couple of contexts. For, for one, um, think about the suffering that Christians are undergoing around the world. Our church is helping to support uh, a church in Afghanistan. Um, there are Christians around the world who suffer greatly for the cause of Christ. I think we're called to pray for them. And as we pray for them, and as we lift, lift them up, we're entering into their suffering. Not on the same scale, I realize that, but we're entering into their suffering as we cry out to God for help. And then we also get to participate in the comfort when God answers those prayers. So we, we call out to God for them, we cry out to God, and we, we suffer with them, and there's comfort with that. Um, in your community groups, or in your relationships, or in your friendships with other people in the church, there are people who in our church who suffer and perhaps some of them are people you have relationships with, that we, like Christ, came and suffered for us. We're called to suffer along with them, enter into their struggles, enter into their, their trials and their pain, and cry out to God on their behalf. I think that's what Paul is calling in the Corinthian church to do, is pray for me. And it's a way that they enter into his, his suffering, and it's a way that when God answers their prayer and Paul's delivered, that they're also comforted and can turn around and praise the living God so prayer for deliverance prayer is the participation in the suffering and in the answer to prayer for the sufferer. And prayer for deliverance is always answered. Prayer for deliverance is always answered. I think that's here in the text as well. Um, Paul cries out to God for help in his suffering. God delivered him. Paul's crying out for help still, and God's going to deliver him again. There's a future suffering that God will deliver him from, but Paul knows that ultimately this could cost him his life, but his prayer is the prayer to the God who raises the dead, to the God who raises the dead. So as Paul preaches this, he does it with confidence that even if, even if he's put to death for the sake of Christ, that God will still deliver him. So, My challenge to you, my call is what is God calling you to? And maybe this doesn't apply to everyone, but is there something, is there a kind of suffering, not that is just part of the general suffering of this world, not that you could avoid and should avoid, but is there a suffering that God is actually calling you to, to enter into? It could be as extreme as God is calling you to be a missionary in a faraway place and leave everything. That, That could be. God does that. Or it could be a situation or a relationship or something that's going on, it would be much easier to stay out of it. But God is calling you into that. God is calling you to do something that's hard or difficult. And if there isn't something that at the moment that God is calling you to, which I'm sure there will be, but if there isn't something, then pray. Pray for persecuted Christians. Pray for those who are suffering alongside of you. Enter into Paul says elsewhere where, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And we do that through prayer, and we do that through coming alongside those who are, who are suffering among us. I'd love to pray for us, and then send us out on our week. Father, I pray for your people. I lift them up. I do not know every situation, but you do. And so, Father, there's, there, I, I know there are people in this room who are suffering, and some, some of them are, are suffering um, sickness, disease, or health concerns, broken relationships. Some of these things are are part of living in a broken world, but you see that and you care and it's hard and it's difficult. So Father, I pray that you will help us in our suffering, help us to turn to you, to rely on you, whether we see how you're working or not, whether we understand the suffering or not. Father, help us to turn to you and learn reliance and dependence, even when it's hard and it's difficult. Father, I pray for us that, for those of us who, who maybe have something in front of them that is difficult, that's hard, that they don't have to do, but that you're calling them to do to embrace a suffering that comes with faithfulness to Christ, that comes with faithfulness to the gospel. Father, give us the strength to do the things we ought, do the things that are hard. Help us to persevere in doing good. And Father, I pray that you will help us to be people of prayer. And it's, it's ironic to ask you in prayer to help us to pray, but God, we're weak and we forget or we, we get discouraged. So, Father, I pray that your spirit will cause us to become people of of prayer. Help us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to come alongside our fellow believers around the world and in this room um, as they weep and as they suffer, um, and help us to do that in a way that honors you. Father, our goal, our delight, would be to praise you for answers to prayer. So, Father, I pray that you will answer the prayers of your people, and we pray in the name of your Son and the Spirit.